Initiating launch sequence. Hi, I'm Ian Black, and this is Ready for Launch. Three, two, one, zero. This week, I'm learning from the delightful Danielle Thompson about how she's transforming her existing online community, Design Club, into a more focused service called Design Match. We discuss what it takes to become a confident designer, tips and tricks for managing your time, creating an online community that people want to engage in, how to avoid the busy trap, the benefits of fear, and the power of vulnerability. As well as a serial entrepreneur, Danielle is also a nomad, so off-air I pinned down her top recommendations for travel once the world opens up again. They were Bali, Lisbon, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Mexico, particularly the Salina Hotel for its co-working spaces. Enjoy the show. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. How are you? (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm excited to have you on. You're actually, I think, the first person who I have no connections with before (laughs) this podcast. So I appreciate you helping me out. Of course. I feel honored. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'd love to start how I start all of these episodes with you giving a little introduction into who you are, what your business is called, and what you think is unique about it. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm Danielle. I'm a UX UI designer from Canada and a maker. So I run a few businesses, but today I'm really, really excited to talk about a specific one called Design Club. And essentially Design Club is an ecosystem for designers to find clients, to learn new business skills. And what I absolutely love, like what I'm crazy about with Design Club is kind of the mission. And I'm on a mission to empower 1 million designers. And that mission, a lot of people are like, why did you choose designers? Is it just because you're a designer? And I was like, well, half of it, yes. But also, I think there's a part about design that people don't really see that, you know, everything around us is designed. And a designer or or someone at least who tried to be a designer uh, made decisions about how our world works. And if the people who are designing our world, literally the objects we use, the the signs we see, everything around us don't feel empowered, then what kind of world will they create? And so my mission is to just, uh, my mission is to empower designers so they can design a better world. That's very cool. So what were you doing before you started Design Club? What led you to this? Yeah, so I think I, it's funny to say, um, but I think I've been working on this for like almost all of my adult life in different versions. So my first tech startup that I raised some funds for was called Intern. And what it was is empowering students and first student designers and helping them get jobs. And then I had an iterate, then I had my own design agency and I used to just love hiring. So getting as many of my friends jobs as possible. And then also I started an education company and I was empowering freelancers to get better clients. And then I started another tech company and I was working to build teams for tech startups. So creating the future of work. And now there is Design Club, which is kind of the, I think the learnings from all of those companies uh, into one. Very, very exciting journey you've had. Did you find any time to do design in any of those roles or was it all about hiring? (laughs) Yeah, no, I actually love designing. I was designing today for the first time in a while. Like I do design, but my own stuff especially is is sometimes kind of hard to to make the time for, but I absolutely love it. Like I, my journey towards design in general started 
with me as an artist, like I was a painter. And then I was like, oh, wait, I could do this digitally. That seems so much better. So I found like Photoshop and started editing like my selfies and stuff like that. And that iterated into me actually becoming a pretty good designer. Let's talk about that becoming a good designer because uh, you've kind of been on TopTal, which is one of the top talent agencies. You've You've been in some magazines for design. How uh, how did you become this designer? Yeah, it's so funny because uh, I always tell the story when people ask me about Design Club or my design agency, which is called Studio Moku or any of the things I've started. Uh, I tell them about when I was in university. And I remember I transferred from, I was in fine art and business and I was like, you know, art's not my thing as it, in general, I think design is more my thing. And how I see the difference between design and art is art is all of, there's a lot about interpretation. So there's so much cultural context and all these things. And if you don't get art, maybe you don't have the right references. Maybe you're not part of that part of society, but if you don't get design, you're the designer wasn't a great designer. And so design for me is the art of translation. So I switched from interpretation to translation. I I moved to Montreal to go to design school. And I, you know, I thought I was pretty decent, you know, when I was in Photoshop and playing around, but I was literally the worst in my class. Like anytime there was a group project, people would always pick me last. They loved me, but in terms of my design skills, it was, they weren't the best. And, um, but the crazy thing is when I was in school, I found the site that was called Elance at the time, which is now Upwork today. And I started talking to clients on there and I started you know, looking at projects and being like, maybe I could solve this, you know, like if I could just message them and see what their problems are and get more details, like I I might not know how to do this, but maybe I can try, you know? And so I started messaging clients and all of a sudden I had some of my first clients. All of a sudden I was making a few hundred dollars a month and then it turned into thousands of dollars a month. And I, again, this is coming from being the worst in the class to the only person actually working in their industry. And even as I was working, I wasn't the best. But one thing was that I felt quite empowered. You know, I felt like I, I could I could change something. I could I could help someone. And I was super duper passionate. And I was just talking to my partner yesterday and I was going like, you know, people think that it's their lack of skills why they don't get hired. But often, you know, it's a lack of confidence. Often it's not seeing your own value. And I think, thankfully, from my parents and mentors, I even though I felt like a total imposter, I felt like I could make a difference. And that passion showed through. And, and I think that's why clients still hire me today. So that's a long way of saying, like, it's, it's not that I was, I'm the greatest designer, even though I, yeah, I was featured in all of these things. But I think I really, really put my heart into every project that I'm working on. And that passion throws, shows through. That's very cool. I assume you probably become a fairly good designer in that time for the work that you come in. I hope so. so. I'm always like in Figma, like, I don't know how to do this. And like my other designers are helping me. Like sometimes I feel like an old lady, like in the, in the actual software. So you're still doing client work or working for startups as well as building out design club. Yeah. Yeah. So I love, I tried actually stop to stop doing client work. I was like, okay, everyone told me to focus on one thing. So let me take a pause from client work. And it was like a part of me was missing, you know? And 
I know some people are trying to get out of working, but I realize I actually really, really love what I do. And I, it might sound cliche, but I, I get a lot of joy doing uh, client work because it's not necessarily my ideas or exactly how I would do it. So it helps expand the way that I think versus my projects are going to be exactly the way that I want it to be. So I think that duality really helps motivate me. And I also have ADHD. So like having two things that I'm working on at once creates a sense of urgency between both of them. And so I'm able to actually be more productive if I'm working on two things versus just one. Yeah, work fills the time you have, right? So if you fill up your time, you have to get everything done faster. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, it's, 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 it sometimes does get overwhelming. Like sometimes I definitely bite off more than I can chew because I get so excited but uh, somehow always manage to get to the other side. And how do you, do you have any tips for managing your time trying to run two businesses? Yeah, and sometimes three, depending when you ask me. Um, So especially as a person who has ADHD, I have to be really mindful of time because I have a lot of time dysmorphia, like in terms of how much time I have left or how much time will it take to do something. Like it's sometimes really, really skewed. Um, so what helped me a lot was tracking things. So I use this tool called Rescue Time. And Rescue Time, you just like install it on your computer or your iPad or even your phone, and it automatically tracks what you do and then categorizes it. So you don't have to like manual turn, manually turn it on or off. So that really helped me actually see how productive I am per day. So after tracking my time for the last four years, I found out that I have about four hours and 30 minutes of productive time per day. And that's super empowering to know so that I don't like stretch myself too far. And I often can make like, okay, what what's the most important thing to do? Because you know you only have this amount of time of like your full brain energy to work on it. So that's like my favorite tip, tracking data, seeing, you know, how you actually work, how your brain works, and then going from there. I'll have to look up that app. I think I'd probably be too scared to see the results. (laughs) No, it's really good. Um, Oh, and actually there's one more I want to tell you about, which I love. It's called Sunsama, S-U-N-S-A-M-A. And it's like Trello and Google Calendar had a baby. So you have all your tasks and they go by day and you can drag them into your calendar so you can like block off the time. So that helped me a lot with my time dysmorphia. I'm like, oh, this is only going to take 20 minutes. And you see that they have this like um, green line that's going down as the time passes, you know, so it shows you where you are in your day. And I have the only 30 minutes blocked and I'm like two hours into it and it's really humbling and I think it's a better way to to understand like how you actually spend your time and your four hours of productive time since you've found that out have you managed to improve that and like get more productive time or do you (laughs) just have to fix fit everything into that time yeah that's a really good question so I it used to be 4.20 for hours and 20 minutes, and now it's 4.32, and that's increased over three years. I got a few extra minutes, and so so <laughs> I think I'm going up, like, you know, I'm proud of myself, but the average employee only has two hours and 30 minutes of productive time per day, so, like, I feel pretty proud of myself <laughs> for that, even though my increase is only by a few minutes per year. 
Okay, yeah, that could take you a while to get another hour on your productive time. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe when I'm like 60, I'm like, I finally made it. Like six hours yeah, right five here. Hours. <laughs> okay, interesting. I'm going to definitely look into this. Awesome. Let's jump back to Design Club. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you kind of told us, you feel like everything was leading to this. At what point did you actually sit down and kind of have that idea and figure out where to start? Yeah, so I used to run an education company called the Freelance Travel Network. It still exists and it, there's a course that you can still buy and it's amazing. Like it's changed people's lives. It had, it's had a huge impact and I absolutely love it. But the problem was that a lot of my students, although they were doing amazing, sometimes didn't see their own progress. And I was trying to figure out for months, I was like, you know, what's going on? Like literally just writing notes and like looking at the the analytics for how far they watched, listening to their comments, having calls with students to kind of understand like why they're having trouble seeing their progress. And I had talked to students who were copywriters, who were designers, who were developers. And I realized that each of them had different markers, you know, for a developer, success might look very different than a copywriter. And so I realized that I was going too wide. I was trying to help everyone. When in in doing that, I didn't end up helping kind of a single persona really, really well. And so I decided to switch gears and I said, okay, what persona do I know really well with? Well, designers, because I'm that persona. I've worked with designers. Designers were also in my course. And I noticed the designers got the most value out of that. And there was this feeling though, also like the people who got the most value out of everyone were the ones who also were doing coaching with me. So they bought the course, but we would speak every couple of weeks. And that's when I, I saw like huge, huge changes in their business. And so I thought, okay, how could I, how could this be scalable? How could I, how could I make something that helps designers? It's scalable, it's educational. You can do it on your own time or you can engage, I don't know, in some other way. And that's when Design Club came it felt like I remember the moment it literally felt like a light bulb moment and at first I was still attached to freelance travel network so I was trying to like merge the brands you know it was super messy I was like design club by freelance travel network and I was like maybe I'll have copywriting club maybe I'll have development club maybe I'll have this and I, I I was like kind of scared to refine my idea which I know a lot of entrepreneurs some like have trouble with like working with startups I've seen it you want to help everyone but again in doing that you don't really help so anyone very very well so I finally refined it down to designers and from there I thought okay so what what I was doing before was I made a super long course I launched it it was great but it was not fulfilling at all really like unless I called the students and talked with them you know um so I said, okay, what if I go live? Like, what if I show up in the community every week and I talk to students and we have lessons and we, we, we have community events? Like, what would that feel like? And I remember just sitting with that feeling, like imagining myself like on camera going live. And I was so scared because like, I had never done a live stream before, except maybe on Instagram. So I was so scared of this idea, but it felt like in my heart, it felt so, so, so much more fulfilling. It felt like, okay, I can actually make a difference. And it's a scalable business model, like subscriptions or taking off. So um, that's how, that was the creation story. It was a lot of, it took a lot of letting go of what I was doing before and kind of tuning into, to, 
to align what I want with uh, what I'm doing with my values a bit more, you know, and making sure that I'm focusing on impact. You said you were scared to refine your idea and, and you think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. Do you have any guidance on how to actually do that refining? Like, does, was there anything that worked for you particularly? Yeah, well, I think I always say if you're marketing to everyone, you're marketing to no one. Um, and what helped me, the question is, who could you serve the best? Like, who could you, who could, where could you make the biggest impact? And for me, it was personas. That was how, as a designer, it's quite easy to think in persona. So to kind of think of an archetype of a person. So in my case, it was an archetype by career. So designers, developers, engineers. Um, but for other people, sometimes it's a demographic. So age group or people from a certain area or background or culture or at a certain stage of life. Um, but I think it's understanding the different demographics that you're passionate about or the different personas you're passionate about and then thinking, okay, who can I serve most? And if I add another group into it, will this increase the value of the product for the people already in it or will it decrease the value of the product? So if I have design club and then I add developers in there, it will decrease the value of the product. Until you are big enough to be able to serve them well. Yeah, or I think it would even have to be different because the feedback I was getting from the people in the club, they were saying, hey, why we like this is because it's just for us. You know, I'm part of other freelance communities, but they're so general um, that I don't feel like it's really for me. I don't know how to communicate. I don't know where I fit in. And I've run another freelance community before this with my previous company that was more general, but ended up being mainly developers who would talk. And so everyone else in the community was like silence, like a ghost, but all the developers felt like it was for them. And they created this community basically for developers. So I think everyone's kind of looking for, um, you know, like-minded people and people like them. And so create if you are interested in creating a community or a product that involves the target market interacting with each other, I think it's super, super important to refine your demographics. Do you take any like particular role in managing that community? Um, how do you get people to speak up? Do they do that for themselves? I think there, there was a lot of steps. First, it was... A ghost town but you have your few people who will always show up no matter what like I remember we had like Angie who was amazing always showing up and Tana and a few people Jackson who would always no matter what comment and compliment people and I think what I had to learn so as an as a as a founder as someone with a lot of knowledge that I want to share my first tendency is to just like give people a bunch of knowledge should be like, here's how you do this here, you know, here's the guide, here's the video, here's a live on this. But I realized that the journey is not really about me, you know, and I just needed to create a space where I could be a mirror for them, where the community could be a mirror for them for wherever they're at and support them. Um, which was challenging, I think, especially with my ego wanting to be, you know, to, to, to give and show and show up in that way. Um, having to stepping back and trusting the process a bit more was a great way to allow, give people at least space to talk. And then some actual techniques we use as well were like, um, like member of the week or doing portfolio reviews or things like that where we're highlighting the members rather than the information that they that they that they um, don't know yet, and we're teaching them. You know, those are nice ideas. Do you have any view on like where in their careers were your first customers or like your 
your most passionate customers are these <laughs> people very early on in design or lots of them senior who are looking to develop their business things like that I think a lot of them had come from corporate, so they had a job where they were quite high up in the design world, and then they went freelance. And they were looking for the same caliber of clients, but sometimes couldn't find them. Um, and I think it was this, often also, we had this huge group of people who had this, I don't know, internal battle around working with certain clients. So they came from corporate and they quit to do freelancing to work with Clients are more passionate about more interesting projects to have more of an impact. But then sometimes they kept running into the same like archetype of a client and they would need the money or feel like they need the money and, and have this big conflict about like, how do I find clients that I'm passionate about? How do I find clients that I actually love? Which, you know, it's super crazy because also in the freelance travel network, the course I had before, that was a huge demographic. And I think it's because of my persona, why I attract those type of people. But I, you know, they would be like, you know, I'm not looking to build a huge business. I just want to build something that I'm proud of. And I thought that was a really, really interesting thing. Cause a lot of like marketing you see online to teach you any business skills, all often about going bigger and having more and, you know, getting more money, more status. But I found this like group of people on the internet who actually just wanted to build something that they could be really proud of. And how do you help them get there? Yeah, a, a lot of ways. But I think the biggest thing is that business is a mind game. You know, it's a, I think where you are in business is kind of a reflection of your own journey, you know? And so I think this might, for some people, they might not see it this way, but I think the journey of business is the journey of falling in love with yourself and realizing your value and so that you can give it to someone else, you know, so that you can give value to other people. But if you don't see your own value, you don't deeply love yourself, business gets really hard and people don't often see that correlation and they think, okay, I just need more skills. I just need, you know, to learn that new, new um, plugin that came out on Figma. I just need to boost up my resume or get bigger clients. And then, and then after that, I will finally be there. But the truth is like, you know, no matter how much outward work you do, I think the real work is the inner work. And so what we would do is not just have workshops on like, you know, finding clients and things like that, but on confidence, on feeling like an imposter, on, you know, um, like, like we talk about outsourcing, but we would talk about the fear around it, you know, and the ethics around it and the, the tough conversations that you have with clients. And so I think it was a really, really safe and vulnerable space for people to feel like, whoa, okay, that's me. And if she's been there, like maybe I'm not so bad, maybe this is normal. Maybe I'm in the right place, you know? I do think that there is a lot to confidence in this game. And that's, I don't know, it's something that's probably quite hard to learn later on in, in your life. Definitely. How did you develop confidence? <laughs> and I know it's not a one answer question. It's an ongoing journey. But like, is there any distinctive point that you've seen in, in your career where you're like, ah, oh, wow, okay, I've come, I'm here, <laughs> I'm somewhere. <laughs> It's an interesting one because I, I like you, I think when I started design, I was not good. And <laughs> I actually remember my first boss, you know, I was really, I really wanted to be a graphic designer. I'd been given a chance at this company, Harrison Fraser. And one of the founders was actually like, he took me and said, you know, graphic designers, they see the world differently 
um, implying that I did not see the world, that <laughs> they saw it and that, that maybe I should look in, into different angles. But I was like so keen to be a graphic designer. And I spent years trying to, to fit that mold. But it wasn't until I kind of found the area of design that I was most interested in, which was digital, that I actually like really started pursuing learning and just developing my skills on the side. And I think doing a lot of that additional work outside of the role and just learning the things because I was really interested in it made a big difference. But I think it was landing a job that I didn't think I was capable of. And then having that team be very happy with my work was probably like the start of building my confidence. Wow. So it's mostly through other it's mostly through other people thinking you're good and that you build it but it took a few years for that to happen I hear you especially about the graphic design I was a horrible graphic designer and I think that's where so many people enter and they think if they can't do graphic design maybe they're not designers but it couldn't be any further from the truth you know there's so many different types of design and graphic is a particular thing where they do see the world in a particular way. And for me, I I didn't have the right glasses on, you know, and I was like, I don't know how to make a poster, but I can definitely make an experience. You know, I can create a space or I can create something online or I can create, you know, so many other things. And so that's amazing to also hear your story of resiliency, because I think it really it's. those things are not often talked about, you know, especially in the design community. I find there's like a lot of celebrity designers who have like all black websites with like, you know, just not very much information. And they're, you know, designing for the best like companies in the world. And the younger designers might look up to them, but there's no sense of vulnerability. There's no sense of like, you know, they were where I'm at today. So I think that story and the stories of so many people in the design club is, is, is for me at least like speaks to that. I also found it probably spurred me on being told that I wasn't this thing. I feel much more confident about those abilities now, but I wonder maybe would I have ever reached that if like someone hadn't told me that I wasn't going to be that thing? Maybe not. It's so funny you say that because actually that's how I got my first design job as well. I I, I was dating someone at the time and I don't think they meant this in a, a bad way, but I, I took it negative and they were like, I was like, I'm going to make $100,000 in the next year or something like that. They're like, Danielle, I don't know if you can do that. You don't, you haven't even graduated. Like, you know, I, I don't, that's a lot of money. And I was like, Oh, watch me! <laughs> and I like, and I, I went on LinkedIn. I messaged all these companies, and I got a job um, a week later. I think it was a week and a half later. I didn't get to hundred, but I got to seventy-five thousand. And um, it was such a, it was so funny though, because I just got it because I wanted to prove that you know I could do this to myself at, in the end. And um, I get this job, and they invite me to a party. And they want me to be like the head of design for this specific um, part of the company, which I'm like so underqualified for, like just ridiculously underqualified for. Um, never managed anyone, don't know anything. I was I was only using UI kits to make all my designs. Like I just really, really underqualified. And 
they invite me to the Christmas party because I got hired just before the break. And I go to the party. They give me like a gift card. It's so fun. I was like, oh my gosh, I love being like an employee. This is amazing. Because before that, I had only worked freelance. So I never knew what it was like to be an employee. So like, this is so cool. You just go to parties. It's amazing. And um, so my, my boss, who is like the head of technology or something like that, came to me at the party. He's like, um, what technology will you need? So I'm like, I need an iMac. I need this. I need that. And I was like, but it's okay, actually, because I'm mainly going to work from home and I'll come into the office whenever we have meetings. So if you need me, I live really close. And he's like, oh, okay, interesting. And the Monday I get an email from HR being like, um, I heard you wanted to work from home. We'd like you to come in for another interview just to make sure you're the right fit. Because, And I quote this, mm-hmm. they're like, water cooler culture is really important for us. And I was like, what the heck? I was like, this makes no sense to me. Like, why would you not want me to work from home if I'm more productive? I save you money. Like, all this stuff, it didn't make any sense. And so I quit the job. Um, but from that day forward, I was starting to get, I started to get higher, uh, bigger clients because my confidence also went up, similar to your situation where I was like, okay, like if these people trust me to be head of design, whether I'm taking the job or not, like maybe there's something good in me. Maybe I'm actually pretty decent at this. Yeah, I think the working from home one is such an interesting one. That's because I've definitely been like, I've moved my career into an area where I can work remotely because I love that, having that freedom. And after I was working remotely for a while for a company that was remote, I then started taking some more contracts back in the city I lived in. But I walked in with the expectation that I would be allowed to work remotely. And and so then you just make that part of your first conversation with the people hiring. You're like, by the way, like, I'm going to be traveling here. I'm still going to work. Like, yeah. if that's a problem for you, then this isn't going to work. And <laughs> you realize that once, if once you've proven yourself to someone, I mean, I still, you know, I worked in the office for the first bit, but then like, once you've proven that you do the work, then people are happy to let you do what you want. But it's interesting because I hear so many other people who are like, oh, my company won't let me work remote. and But no one ever tries. And I feel like <laughs> you, again, it's just that com- having the confidence to say, oh, this is how I work, by the way. So if you want to, if you want to work with me, then that's how I'm going to work. Precisely, precisely. And um, I remember, like, I've never actually had a job in person. So I don't know what it's like. I've never had a job, actually, just period. Like, I... I went to get a job, but I've never been like employed as a full-time employee or even a part-time employee anywhere. Um, And so I don't know what the whole experience is like, but one time I was in Switzerland and I was working with an agency just consulting and I was there for two weeks. Um, So I went to the office, um, like some days I used to come in at like 11 or 12 and everyone's like, what what are you doing? Uh, But I, that's when I started reading the four hour work week at the time, which is uh, by Tim Ferriss. And he talks about that transition for if you are working in a job, how to slowly get your bosses to see that you can work remotely, especially in larger corporations. Like it's some of them take uh, some of the techniques are a little sneaky, but it's, it is about being transparent at some point. So it's a really cool resource if someone's struggling right now to get um, started with remote work. But I mean, now usually you should be okay with remote work considering the global <laughs> crisis. But um, yeah, I think if you're still kind of nervous about going back to the office or something like that, that's a really good resource. Yeah, the working remotely thing has definitely 
been made a lot easier in the last year <laughs> for sure yeah. I feel like uh that will never be a problem again and no. that actually allowed me to move cities I I had always felt a little bit like I need to be near the city for when I was freelancing and like just in case I needed to get some local clients but mm -hmm. after this year I was like that doesn't matter anymore I'm going to be able to work for so many different people around the world because everyone has been forced into this way of working <laughs> so I moved to this little mountain town and I get to stare out over like this beautiful monolith of rock and this lovely watery inlet outside my apartment instead of uh I mean, I was living near the beach anyway before, but now I don't have many, many buildings around me. That's beautiful. I think like working remotely and for me, I consider myself a nomad because I'm always moving around. Um, but it's been, I think, another way that I've built confidence, like going into cultures that you don't understand the language, you don't know anyone and having to rebuild yourself over and over and over again, I think is a really, really great way to build confidence quickly. Yeah, 100%. I need to feel like I need to do more of that once travel is reinstated for us here in Canada. Is there anywhere you want to go? Yes, <laughs> so many places. <laughs> uh, my first is probably going to be Mexico for some surfing and kite surfing, learn to kite surf, do some surfing. But I'd really love to do some touring through Europe next year. I feel like I moved away from London four and a half years ago and since I've been living in Canada, I've really regretted how little I went to Europe when I was in London. <laughs> yeah. and, and now I really want to go back and just travel and work through like the coastal towns of Portugal and France and then maybe like the Alpine towns of the Alps and things like that. So it's incredible. There's a lot it's... of places. <laughs> no, it sounds wonderful, though. I'm going to be in Canada in about a month and um, so heading closer to you. <laughs> nice. I mean, it's a good place to have at the base for sure. Definitely. Definitely. You mentioned you never had a full-time job. So, <laughs> and I'm interested in that because, you know, I think that lends itself to you starting businesses. So like, if you've never had a job, you're probably not afraid of not having a job. But <laughs> as someone for myself, uh, growing up, having a like steady job as an employee was something like that was seen the right thing to do in my family I would say and so I wonder like what was your upbringing like and did that lead itself into you taking this more entrepreneurial route <laughs> yeah so I'll tell you a story about when I used to go to kindergarten so um, before I was in first grade and my dad would drive me every day to kindergarten and uh, my dad's a finance guy and he'd be like Danielle what do you do when your stocks drop and I'd be like buy low and sell high and, and like <laughs> so from <laughs> so from a really young age I was quite brainwashed I say in the best way though um, and, and and taught a lot about finance I had like a lot of financial literacy and my dad's an entrepreneur so I understood what it is to have a business you know and and what it looks like to have a business and my mom works in a job she works at the university and that's it was a cool dynamic seeing them both because each of them had benefits and also downfalls my dad worked so many hours sometimes and uh, my mom had to clear time off but also my dad sometimes had more diversity in his work and so when I decided to not get a job, they were very much um, happy about that. They are super, super supportive. And I do want to acknowledge, though, like 
I think sometimes when we talk about entrepreneurship and starting businesses, the privilege isn't always acknowledged. And I want to acknowledge the place of privilege I came from. So my parents, when growing up, were not like super duper wealthy or anything like that. But I did always have a safety net that I can come home, that I have access to credit. Even, you know, there's there's certain privileges that I know I have, even just as a Canadian, that I want to acknowledge. Um, because I think sometimes it's hard to hear these messages about, you know, just go out there and just do it, you know, it's okay. But being in a position where literally you feel like your hands are tied, you know, so I just want to acknowledge that um, before we, we continue. Um, but uh, yeah, so my parents were really supportive about my entrepreneurship. I started, what was my first gig? I guess it was, I was a photographer. So I used to work in school as a photographer. I interned in high school as a photographer. And I would take photos of like my friends' families for like hundred bucks, and I would buy um, extensions to my hard drive so I can store more photos. <laughs> and and then um, I did have one job, but I barely counted because I worked at a theme park for two weeks, and then uh, I think I got fired or I stopped showing up. One of the two, but <laughs> that that was the closest thing I've had to a job. You mentioned you know your dad was working so many hours. And we've talked about you only having four productive hours, four hours and 23 or 32 minutes. Yeah, my dad's crazy. <laughs> do, you, do you suffer from the like overwork, even though you know you've only got this like number of productive hours? Like, do you still feel like you're doing a lot of things and your life is taken up by these businesses? There's been times where I've been busy, but there's this article that I highly recommend. It's called The Busy Trap. It's in the New York Times. And it really talks about um, kind of how busy becomes an identity. And I wrote a few articles about this as well. Um, I don't even know where they are anymore, but early on in my career when I was around people, especially I lived in Bali for quite a few years and I would be around all these amazing entrepreneurs who would barely find time to go to the beach and maybe beach is not their thing, but to take a weekend trip to go to the beach to do much of anything. And we're so kind of obsessed with their businesses and I've been there too, so it's not a judgment. But what I found really interesting is a lot of... Um, nomads specifically and also some entrepreneurs say that they're working for freedom and i've seen people access a level of freedom of financial freedom of time freedom you know especially if you're building an outsourced business or you have a big team underneath you and you have some steady money coming in there is freedom in that but once the freedom is there like do you take it and i have my own story for that i was it was my birthday actually and i was in lisbon which is where i am right now and um i was with my friend albert and we decided we're going to rent a camper van and we're going to go on this trip throughout the coast of portugal and i had this internet i can connect to the internet but i didn't really have much work to do and albert was a student so he didn't have uh, any work to do cuz he was off school and i remember it was like day Two, and I was like, wow, this is so great. I don't have to do anything. And then day three, I started checking my email more, feeling like maybe I missed something. And day four, I realized that I was completely uncomfortable with the stillness that I was experiencing. And I felt really uncomfortable not doing anything and not having what I felt like a purpose, like just kind of being there. And I won't say one state is better than the other, but I had to be honest with myself that I'm not making these businesses for freedom. 
I'm making because I just like making things. Like I'm making because making lights me up. Making is amazing. And I'm not even doing it for impact. Impact is a product of my making. But I just like building things. I like designing things. I like creating things. And kind of acknowledging that and being honest with myself has helped me create a better balance because I can see if I'm aligning with that mission. It's like, am I still making because this is fun? Or, you know, am I super tired? It's two o'clock and I'm on the computer just doing things because I know I'll be paid or because this might push the needle on this new business idea. So I do think I have a decent balance most of the time, but there are some times I do get caught up in it. And when I do, I'm very, very quick to do something extreme to make sure that 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 doesn't become my identity, that busyness doesn't become my normal state. You know, you mentioned there that do it because you love the making and if it gets to the point where you don't then maybe it's time to do something new your design club is quite focused around you at the moment it's you know you are the mentor you're doing the lessons you're the people you're there to engage with the people and help them along is there a phase in the future where you think you will phase out so that you have that flexibility to kind of stop it at will or how do you see you might approach that So as you saw that the design club as it is now doesn't exist in the same way. It exists in a different way and I'll talk about that, but it, why I'm saying this is it ties directly into your question. So kind of being the face of it wasn't sustainable for me, like in the sense where I'm just the person teaching, mentoring, it wasn't sustainable. And sometimes I was having trouble giving, creating enough space and more space for, for everyone else to to interact and to to just be them. And so what we're doing with the design club version two is we're focusing on people in a very specific, who, who want a very specific lifestyle. So people who want to build design agencies um, and to do that through outsourcing. And so the community can help itself a bit more and we can be more focused on support, social events, networking and sharing rather than just teaching. So I think like that's that's why for that exact question is why I switched what I'm doing with the design club because it took so much of my emotional energy and I don't want to be the main part of my businesses. Does that mean you're going to lose some of the aspects like the live lessons where you, you know earlier it sounded like you you love leaning into that because you there was this fear and it sounded like that was maybe something that drove you to pursue it so will will some of these things be lost in that next iteration um I think they're going to be there but just the maybe the frequency will be less and and from the start bringing in more guest speakers um but live I think is important but I think the most valuable part when I used to do live lessons was when people got to talk to each other so I used to do like breakout rooms or uh, like networking and I find that was when people had kind of insights and they had breakthroughs and they felt heard or seen so yes live is something that I think is important for teaching but the I think the way that I was doing it wasn't sustainable for me emotionally and I think it creates a hierarchy that I don't want in the community where it's like I am the teacher the mentor and you are the mentees or students which is it's not true I was learning from everyone you know um, so I think creating a space that 
is allows more people to 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 find their 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 mentor inside of them you know their their own ability to lead is really important but to do that you have to refine the space even more so that people can say hey this is for me because this is exactly what i'm doing trying to do or have done have you done not all of this by yourself the creation of design club or like have you had other partners in the creation of it as well along the way yeah, so my my fiance, my partner, my actual partner was my partner in that. Uh, so we were doing it together and he would be at every live, he would be helping, um, he would be talking to the community. So he was the other person involved in that uh, business and that venture. But since then, he's created his own um, info product, which is awesome. It's in Spanish, so maybe most of the community won't understand it. But uh, so he's kind of doing another thing now. And the design club is is merging into a few different things that I could talk about if you'd like. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So today I was literally in Figma, just like for hours, so excited and so obsessed with what I'm working on now. Um, and you know how I said the journey of business is kind of the journey of self-love and even the journey of life, like they all kind of correlate. And I think the journey, all those journeys involve coming back to yourself, you know, like, like, you know, you thought you needed to be this, but then you realized you could be yourself. You thought like life was like this, but then you realize it was what you've known already. So I've heard this kind of narrative with a lot of my friends is everyone's getting older. There's this is like effect where we come back to the same place sometimes in, in different versions. And, um, I think business and my business specifically is definitely a reflection of that where, um, I build software, you know, I build tech startups. I, I work with tech startups and I take their idea and I build, um, I build it out and I'm really, really good at building out experiences. I'm good at marketing as well because I've helped a lot of my, my clients market and uh, I'm good at identifying the real problem that the customer is facing because sometimes you think they're facing one problem, but you realize that it's another problem. And so the other day I was thinking, okay, I really want to help the people from the design club um, get clients, you know, and I've been doing that. I've been connecting people with clients. I got a message the other day from one of the students and he's like, whoa, Danielle, in the last six months, my life has changed. I have one of my dream clients. Um, My health is better, this, that, all these things. So like getting a client can really change the trajectory of your life, like in your case with confidence and others, like in the student's case, the ability to contribute to his family, um, to spend more time on himself. So it's one of the things that I'm so passionate about. And if you ask anyone who's ever met me, I'm really, really excited and always helping people get opportunity and see the best in themselves. So I was thinking, okay, I want to get these, these um, designers more opportunities. My design agency is always fully booked, you know, and there's always so many people I need to say no to. And I have an incredible ability to get clients. That's why I teach it. So what if I put all that into a platform. You know, what if I took the designers who are already there, who are so talented and so amazing, who I know personally, a lot of them, and just match them with clients that they actually love, which is something that they've been longing for, you know? And so I started doing it manually and it works, you know, and and clients are happy because they have designers who are passionate and genuinely excited about what they're doing. And designers are happy because they have a client who's paying them well and that aligns with their values. And so the design club 
is exists still and there's a product called um, design clients on demand which you can get and then also there's a upsell which will um teach you how to start an outsource agency called Outsource to Freedom. And from that community um, and the designers who are in that those, those products who have been trained um, under the design club, I'm going to be matching them and helping them find amazing clients through Design Match. So this is kind of the full circle. So taking the skills that I have, building software, tech, and experiences, taking my abilities to find clients, taking my love for community and helping and contributing and creating a space where people can get results right away, which, yeah. So I'm so excited. I've been obsessed with it for the last however long. And yeah, I'm, we're, we're, we're just building the platform and some algorithms um, to help with the matching. And yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. It's great to hear you've like kind of landed in this area that you has all these different pieces, but you feel very passionately about all of them. And it's also interesting that what what you're building is actually it's quite broad again but it came from you really narrowing down at the start and to like focus down on designers but then through that you've opened up all these other opportunities that connect very well to one another precisely precisely and that's what feels good about it because i always had so many ideas but they always felt I, and I, I was always trying to bring things under one umbrella so first with my design agency i was like okay maybe i'll teach um in the agency and maybe this is we only hire talent from the agency but it wasn't scalable or this or that and this is i think the first time in maybe my life where everything feels so clear, everything's clicking, everything feels like it's in flow in terms of business. And I feel like the impact of this is just going to be absolutely insane. And it's a chance for me to really test my skills and sales and all these things and creating delightful experiences and rewriting the way that people are hiring, you know, for more holistic hiring. Um, there's just so much opportunity here to make a huge mark on the startup community, on the freelance design community that I'm like, just talking about it gets me so, so, so excited. Yeah. And I can hear that, which is great. Is there anything that you are afraid of though in the process yeah definitely so i think for me the scary thing is always launching something new so i try and launch things quickly so i don't have time to be a perfectionist because perfectionism is the fear of people seeing that well you're not perfect and that you have weaknesses and it's something that I think everyone can fall into, um, but I try to avoid it by putting out things as fast as humanly possible and also not designing all my own things. So I design like wireframes or, or, or use like kits to make quick mock-ups, but I have designers take it from there so that I don't, it doesn't become too precious. So uh, yeah, I get scared of like the idea of like putting something on product hunt or um, emailing a bunch of companies, like those things really scare me, but that's always a sign that, you know, I'm onto something good because I don't think I get scared that easily. I tried to give my mom that advice recently <laughs> when she told me she was afraid of going hiking because, uh, she could get eaten by bears in Canada, <laughs> which is like, it's very true, but I keep reading all of these like business-based things, which say, oh, you should really lean into the fear. So I was like, mom, oh, if you're afraid of uh, being eaten by bears, you know, that's a sign you're onto something really good and you should go do it. But uh, she didn't agree with that. So maybe it's not 
advice that applies in all aspects of life. <laughs> well, one something maybe you could tell your mom that worked with my mom um, is called the five second rule. It's by, I forgot her name, but there's a book about it. And basically she, this woman was like super duper depressed and I might be butchering the story because I never read it. This is like third party information from my mom. Um, so <laughs> this woman is super duper depressed and she's in bed and she could get out of bed no matter what she tried. And then one day she was like, I don't know, watching TV or just thinking about things. And she thought of a rocket taking off and how there's this momentum, right? And this countdown. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to try something completely ridiculous, but I'm going to count down from five to one. And when I hit one, I'm going to be standing out of this bed. And so she went, she's like, five, four, three, two. And all of a sudden, after months of being in bed, she's on her feet. She's feeling different. She's feeling like something has changed or something has happened. And she kind of realized that life was a series of these kind of moments of, of, of short bursts of fear. And then you're on the other side. I won't need to tell my mom because she's one of my main listeners and she will hear this directly from you. <laughs> Fantastic. Hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. What is something you think you'd never have learned if you hadn't started Design Club? I think I... I think I wouldn't learn about my own power. So even though I feel quite confident as a person, I think there's always things that scare you. There's always things that you feel uncomfortable about. And I think one thing that I was always learning about in Bali, but never really understood or never know, knew how to internalize it, but was to own your story, you know, own your story because you're here and it's incredible that you're here. You've been through hardships and it's incredible that you're here and that you've done what you've done, you know? Um, and I just thought of my story as a series of fluke and luck and all of these things. But the truth is that it, that it isn't. And it's amazing and it's impressive. And it's a story of resilience. It's a story of, of love. It's a story of so many things. And through Design Club, like every single time I was doing a live, I would get more vulnerable. So the first time I literally sounded like I was on, I don't know, a bunch of drugs. I was speaking so fast. I was so scared. I was just trying to get through the content. I was like, ah, everything, like, here's what you do, LinkedIn, how to find clients, blah, blah, blah. And every time I was starting to get a little bit more comfortable, you know? So like I went from, yeah, sounding like I was on drugs to like slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And as I slowed down, more of me came through, more of my story, more of the vulnerabilities, more of the moments where I don't have the answer. And I think that was such a beautiful lesson um, and a reminder as well of like how beautiful your vulnerability is, how it will be accepted, you know, that it's not something to hide and that your story in no matter where you are in it, <laughs> which is always in the middle somehow, you know, um, is valuable, you know, and, 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 and that story might just change the way that someone thinks of themselves. Um, so that was a really, really good learning and it's taught me and I'm still learning it, but every day I'm trying to be more of me, you know, and I'm trying to show more of me and it can be scary sometimes. But just take it five seconds at a time. Exactly. Every moment, every five seconds I'm counting down. <laughs> yeah. That's a really beautiful sentiment. So I think we're going to wrap up on that, <laughs> which means it's time for the quick fire round. Yay. 
we're going to start very easy. Are you ready? Yeah. Who are you? Danielle. What's your business called? Uh, uh, Design Match. (laughs) Why should people use Design Match? Um, To find clients that they absolutely love and to work with companies and to to help companies. Oh, yeah, to find clients they love. It's so fast, rapid route. (laughs) The biggest challenge you faced? Life (laughs) itself. Life, okay. That's a big one. Best part of the job? Um, Getting to show who I really am. The worst part of the job? Having so many options. If you could go back to before you started Design Match or Design Club and you could do it all over again or you could do something else, which would you choose and why? I would do it all over again because I think the learnings were incredible and I would still have more to learn. And where can people go to find out more about you and your company? Yeah, so for now, I think going to designclub.co, so .co, is a great place to start. There's a product there called Design Clients on Demand, which teaches you how to find amazing design clients by and not feel salesy or scammy or anything like that, but just by being yourself, which is kind of a relief, <laughs> if you ask me. And you can also find me on Instagram, where I'm Danielle, T-O-M, Danielle Tom. Fantastic. Danielle Thompson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a wonderful chat. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, bye. Hey, listeners. If you love today's episode, there's a number of ways you can support this podcast. You can give us a great review on Apple. You can follow us on Spotify podcasts, or you can reach out to us on Instagram at readyforlaunchpodcast.com. See you next time.